702 for the curious. Streaming countrywide on the 702 app. As I said, up next, the uh, very first person I'm speaking to is uh, Professor Priscilla Reddy. Uh, she's the Deputy Executive Director of the Human Social Capabilities Division at the HSRC. And uh, they've conducted a, a, a an interesting um, survey recently um, around uh, the impact of COVID-19. Uh, good evening to you, Prof, and thank you for joining us. Uh, good evening, Bushwa, and good evening to the listeners as well. Great stuff. So, Prof, I mean, obviously, at the moment, I've seen all kinds of surveys uh, looking at all kinds of things. I think this is probably the one time where statistical analysis would be key and important for government, for us as society. That's how we know how many cases of COVID-19 we have. This is how we know how big a crisis we have. What was the aim and the purport behind your survey in this instance? Okay, as you know, there's a lot of epidemiological work that's gone on, predicting mm. uh, cases, predicting the, the demands on, on healthcare facilities, um, and predicting the infection rates. Mm, mm. Um, there's also been a lot of work done on the impact of this virus and what to do about that. But we at, we at the Human Sciences Research Council are social scientists. And what we were aiming to do with this particular survey is to try and get insights into people's behaviors and their determinants of those behaviors so that some of those numbers can be explained, B, and C, is that you know, knowing the number of cases is not helpful. It's what is helpful if we know the, the number of cases and understand what can stop the prevention uh, of the spread to other people and whether people will take those uh, pre- prevention actions or mm. can take them and what do they mean to them. So I guess that's a, a, a simplistic way of explaining this complex study. No, no, I mean, that's that's absolutely stunning because obviously one of the key things that we are facing uh, on Friday is is us moving as a nation at the very minimum, although the president made it clear that certain regions, certain provinces, certain areas could still remain at uh, level five in terms of its lockdown. But ultimately, as a nation, we're moving towards level four. Um, and, and I guess some of the behavior that we are embarking on at the moment uh, would in all likelihood predict what our behavior would be with uh, the, the the lifting of of some of these uh, regulations that we see in place. Is, is that is that one of the thoughts of the HSRC at this point? Um, uh, yeah, um, I, I guess the lockdown was sort of, if you look at it in percentages, was the hundred percent implementation of trying to protect the nation. So as we move out of the lockdown, sort of go into a lockdown light, we're going to go through different phases. And they've looked at the phases in terms of uh, a risk assessment. Mm. And, and they calculated that based on the, the, the surveillance work that's being done and the testing work are looking at small fires in different places. You know, if you have symptoms, you go get tested. And depending on the results, a happens or B happens. So I think that the kind of risk assessments we've been doing mm. the survey, we're looking at how you, the person, perceives yourself at risk. 
Mm-hmm. Which, which, you see yourself at risk or not at risk in, in particular response to the question you asked me. Uh, and I looked at some of the, I, I actually saw the presentation, uh, some of the slides, and it's actually quite interesting what, uh, you know, some of the detail is coming through that. And, and maybe we can start looking at that in particular, because I see that uh, Dr. Bladen Zamande, the Minister of Higher Education, Science and Technology, uh, of course, released mm-hmm. the, the results today of the survey and discussed them uh, in a press briefing. Uh, based on that. So obviously what w- one of the key things that we've seen in the last week is that we saw a massive increase in the numbers um, of, of COVID-19 cases. I won't lie to you. Um, I didn't think that the president on Thursday was going to tell us that we're going to move towards um, lighter conditions uh, based on our uh, lockdown at this particular point in time. I thought that it was actually going to be more severe, but uh, I, th- I guess a sigh of relief, um, you know, for the economy's sake as well as for personal movement that there's going to be some lightening of that particular lockdown load. But if we look at some of the results coming out, I mean, one of the key things that stands out, as you said, is how people uh, see and understand COVID-19. The first thing was knowledge knowledge about uh, COVID-19 prevention. How are we faring in that particular space? Well, if you look at knowledge about prevention in particular, Mm. if uh, you look at... The the, the 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 staying two meters away from a person, wearing a mask, staying away from people who are symptomatically infected because that's what you know. Not touching your face, your nose, your eyes, uh, washing your hands at a frequency for for twenty seconds and frequently. Knowledge is very very high for all of them, mm. extremely high for all of them. And there's a small proportion who say they don't know, and then uh, and then even lesser proportion who say no. So knowledge is very, very high. And we were not surprised that knowledge is high because the way South Africa approached this, you know, you would have to be a real ostrich with your head very deep in the sand not to, ha- not to have heard these things. Because, you know, you, people are talking about this everywhere all the time. And the Minister of Health in particular has been absolutely amazing He's become the national health educator. He's become the national behavior change person. Mm, uh, he mm. has such a, a community health approach to the way he's dealing with all of this. And um, so I'm not surprised that as a big influencer, you know, there's been such a big impact on, imp- on, on creating an understanding and a knowledge of what to do. Now, that the, the two difficulties are, can you do what, what, what they're recommending you can do? That is, so are you able to do it? Do you have a mask? Do you have water? On the one hand, those are the determinants. So that's the issue. But on the other hand is, mm. will you, the actual individual, perceive yourself to be at risk sufficiently no, to that's actually the... do the behavior, to go that step and no, convert yeah. your knowledge to now, that was exactly the next issue that I wanted to take up with you because part of the problem that we do see, especially amongst us as South Africans, is that, and I think maybe I'm, I'm borrowing too much from uh, the historical past, where, as you very well know, we had a serious problem with uh, the spread of HIV and AIDS uh, in South Africa for, for quite some time. We're still the country with the highest HIV prevalence. And, and what that shows me is that despite the amount of information and knowledge that we had and education that was provided both from government and civil society on preventative measures, um, we are still, uh, we are, we still unfortunately, 
uh, tended to ignore those and, and behave quite irresponsibly. So there seems to be a disjuncture, at least historically speaking, between people's knowledge base and uh, the manner in which they, they, they behave themselves. Uh, do we see that coming through with COVID-19 as well? Or is it the case of people are actually uh, concerned about this thing um, and then they're taking the necessary uh, uh, preventative steps and, and, you know, therefore they are worried. They are a bit paranoid and, and washing their hands as much as they possibly can. Prof? Hello? It seems that we lost that line there. I mean, it, it would really uh, be intriguing for me to hear whether uh, we have changed our behavior, um, you know, around that and whether we see uh, COVID-19 as an actual threat, um, you know, from a, a societal perspective. Because um, I'm, I'm, I'm very much concerned about this notion of us knowing what it is that we need to do. I mean, uh, during the dark days of HIV and AIDS, when HIV and AIDS was still largely a death sentence in this country, uh, many of us knew and understood and appreciated the fact uh, that, you know, you needed to um, uh, protect yourself, whether it be through the use of condoms, uh, having one sing- uh, you know, singular partner, all of those things. We knew these things, but we still behaved uh, contrary to that to a large extent. Um, and the question is, uh, how does that translate then when it comes to the issue of, of, of COVID-19? Prof, are you back? Yes, I'm back. Yes, uh, I'm back. I don't know what happened there. Thanks. Um, well, both are viruses. Uh, both involve individual human behavior and societal behavior. Mm, mm. Now, with, with COVID-19, you know, unlike HIV, uh, the spread of HIV, you actually have to have sex with somebody to get virus. In this instance, you just need to look at somebody. You need to stand next to somebody. Mm. And if the person is infected, you can get the virus. So the behavior, the, re- the requirement of the behavior is both at an individual level. However, the, and both are very personal behaviors. So you've got to do something. So yes, in that way, they are similar. Um, but the, the, the effect of COVID-19 is much more immediate. You get sick immediately, and depending who you are and how, the, uh, uh, depending on the disease progression, you can get very, very ill and either recover or not recover. So there's a certain immediacy in this, in this particular virus, uh, the spread of this virus. In addition, the economic impact, the social impact um, mm. is very direct. You've got to stop movement. So we've got a, we've just moved down from a 100% lockdown, which is a policy intervention that says you can do, and if you don't do, the law will be enforced. Yeah. I think what our, our leadership is trying to do is they're trying to appeal to us as individuals and say, look, if we all play our part in this, we can help our economy. Now, obviously, so, we, we understand that that's one of the key things in forming uh, the lightning of lockdown conditions as we're moving in that particular direction at the stage, uh, Prof. And it's extremely important because I think that the president in his briefing on Thursday made it absolutely clear what is at stake here when he told us that people are starving. Um, you know, people need to eat um, and that we need to start reviving the economy. And I think everyone would completely and utterly agree with the president on that particular front. But um, and, and I don't know if the survey is probably the space where we will find that particular information that I'm seeking now. What my concern is, are we ready 
for lifting some of the provisions that we have at this stage, taking into account that we just came out of a week that's probably saw the highest increase in COVID-19 cases in South Africa? Yes, that's a very, very important and difficult question to respond to. Mm. I guess all things being equal, we probably would not have lifted the the uh, COVID-19 lockdown regulations. Mm. But all things are not equal. And so decisions had to be taken to tip the balance, as I said in the presentation. And and because the president had to uh, take such a big decision, um, I think that we've got to appeal to each person in the country to say, let's do our bit to help. Um, because it was it was a very big decision to take, and that's why it's being take, taken in this phased manner. And there are clusters where the situation is worse, and there are clusters where it is not that worse. You know, it's not as bad, mm-hmm. um, but it's there, irrespective. That's why I'm using those comparative terms, because it is bad, no matter what. And as a society, I do believe that South Africa will pull together. We always do. Uh, we've just got to encourage each other. And I think there has to be a lot of civil activity. So, you know, if you're in a shopping space, you know, you're going to have to insist that your, your fellow South African stands two meters away from you. And if there are rules about taxis being, being uh, sprayed, then you as a group have to ensure, okay, eight of us are going to jump into this taxi. Has it been sprayed? Have we got masks? Can we get in? And I but that, think that, 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 that sort of, I'm, I'm sorry, um, and, and it's just because of time that I keep on interrupting with my questions, but I mean, what you're speaking to there is also the compliance issues related to um, uh, lockdown conditions and provisions. I mean, I'm looking at, a, uh, you know, at one of the slides here, uh, looking at people's compliance or let me see, uh, adherence to lockdown regulations. And I mean, what do we find there? Because ultimately what we need is, is that uh, we need some high level of, of adherence or compliance uh, from phase five into phase four. Um, and then subsequent to that phase three and phase two until we get to a point whereby we can literally say that we're free of any lockdown conditions based on COVID-19. So what my question ultimately is, Prof, is, is you know, how do we look in terms of compliance? Okay. If you look at comp- compliance, which we've had to look at in terms of the st- strict definition of what compliance was, in this case, compliance was that you shall not leave your home unless you're going out to buy food or get medicines or get a social grant. Mm. And what we found, the majority of the people who left their homes indicated that they'd left their homes to get food, medicine, and a social grant. A very small proportion of people uh, said that they'd left their home to go out and visit friends and neighbors. So if you measure it like that, Mm. and you look at it like that, yes, people were compliant. Because according to what they told us in the survey, they left their homes to do those particular things. Now, what happens when they leave their home is another set of circumstances altogether. You know, we asked them, when you left your home, how many people did you come into contact with? And we found that 20% had indicated in that question that they had not left their home, but 8% had met with more than 50 people. So did they meet more than 50 people or in close contact with more than 50 people, which is a very high risk situation at a mall, at a funeral, at a taxi rank, in a hospital queue, in a taxi queue? 
Mm. Um, you know, we need to find out more about that. And I think more work really, really needs to be done on the meanings of the social distancing here. And I think, yes, we are, in a sense, entering a much higher risk situation in that the lockdown has been released, you know, released somewhat. And therefore, there's more demanded of us now that the lockdown has been uh, loosened up than during the lockdown. What I wanted to find out from you, I mean, based on that, then what does it tell us? Because obviously the president came out and he spoke to us on Thursday and told us, look, South Africans need to eat, which in my opinion implies that there is obviously deep socioeconomic inequality and need on many levels. We also see all kinds of statistics coming out in terms of the number of companies that are able to, for example, pay salaries at this particular stage, how many people are earning an income. Um, we're also seeing that there's an increase of people seeking UIF assistance and so on and so forth. I mean, what are some of the, what, what is the question of, our, what I'm trying to get at is, what are some of the needs that people have or what, is, what are the statistics showing us in terms of what the, the economic condition of people are at this particular point in time during this lockdown? Okay, yeah, we, have the, the, we, we definitely collected that data um, on, you know, where you be able to buy food. Um, mm. And we, we, we called it financial capability, for example. Are you able to pay your bills? Are you able to have difficulty in paying your bills, difficulty in earning an income, difficulty in feeding your family, and have difficulty in keeping your job? Uh, difficulty in paying bills over two-thirds. In fact, the, the figure ranged between 45% to about 63%. So yes, there's a lot of difficulty there. And in terms of you know, people who we asked them a neutral, neutral response. Again, there, that's between 23 and 14 percent. And that could easily go off into, yes, I'm having difficulty. So, yeah, people were very honest about them having difficulty in, in you know, over this lockdown period. And that difficulty will go ahead um, into the post-lockdown or the loose lockdown period as well. Mm. So, people... You know, we've got numbers for those now, yeah. And, um, and, and in terms of that, I mean, what does that tell us? Do we see an increase? Because, of course, we know that we come from a deeply unequal uh, society with high numbers of, of unemployed people. Uh, we, we know for a fact that we already live in a country where we see poverty levels that are extremely high. And when we talk about poverty, we're not talking about luxuries where people miss out on a movie or two or aren't able to wear the name brands that they'd like to. But what they tend to do is that they're living under conditions where they don't even have access to food. I mean, what do we know about, uh, you know, accessibility in those spaces? How many people, have we seen a decrease in the number of people that have been able to eat? Have we seen a, num- a decrease in the number of people to access basic services like water, housing, and so forth, the very basic things that we need to survive ultimately? Well, about, about uh, 25% of the residents indicated that they had no money to buy food, right? Mm. And more than 55% of informal settlement participants indicated that they had no money to buy food. Um, you know, and, and we did the analysis by community type for obvious reasons. I think, you know, I think an overall sort of helicopter view of, of this whole piece of the data is, is that a lot of these things existed in these particular communities who are struggling over time. 
this is not a new phenomenon to South Africa, but what the lockdown did, it brought this out into the open. It brought focus onto it. So these problems were there before the lockdown, and a lot of them have been exacerbated because essentially we've had to shut the economy down. But they were there before, Mm, and mm. they are there during the lockdown, and they're going to continue. You know, it it was heartwarming to see TV, uh, television stations trying to raise money to buy food for people or to provide any kind of facility for people. Now, had COVID happened, not happened, these people would have been quietly in those environments. But now it's all come to the fore. So in its own weird way, perhaps COVID has given us an opening um, to examine how we as a society live and the the value of life. But this is not a phenomenon just about South Africa. This has happened across the globe. Yeah, yeah. If you look look at uh, CNN at any point in time, you look at the vast number of people that are claiming unemployment. So it's not just South Africa. It's the world. Mm. It is. I mean, it's a global tragedy in, in, in no uncertain terms. And, and it's a global phenomenon, as you had pointed out very eloquently there, Prof. I mean, there's a final question, and this is something I found so interesting. Uh, cigarettes were more accessible than alcohol during lockdown. A quarter of people from informal settlements were able to buy cigarettes during lockdown. I mean, I find that actually quite um, uh, phenomenal and stunning as, as a statistic, especially based on the fact that just last week, um, I spoke to, uh, amongst others, Yusuf Abramji, um, as well as, um, I just forget, forget her name now, uh, you know, specifically talking about uh, the relaxation of alcohol and, um, and, and, and uh, tobacco products regulations and the impact that that would have on the economy and is having on the economy. Clearly, if uh, so many people were able to access cigarettes, uh, there's a high probability that SARS is not going to get their cut, considering that this was obviously done uh, you know, under lockdown conditions when cigarettes weren't supposed to be on sale, let alone booze. Yeah, so let's look at cigarettes on its own. Mm. Um, tobacco use in itself is preventable. That's number one. Number two, tobacco use is implicated in several chronic diseases, not just lung cancer, in diabetes, in hypertension, in heart disease. So to be using tobacco is already costing state. Uh, 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 money, it's already costing the healthcare system a major amount of money. It's taking up resources that we don't need to take up. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about tobacco per se. So in addition to that, we have a very powerful and strong industry that um, was arguing that it needs to be open because mm-hmm. it's losing revenue. Uh, and, and because it's losing revenue, government will lo- use, re- lose revenue. But is this so? Because how come, you know, so much of uh, cigarettes are so available in the township? It's my f- feeling that, <clears throat> that um, we really need to look at um, monitoring uh, tobacco use more seriously and um, that's number one. And number two, you know, often we know that for giving up uh, tobacco use, it's, yes, there are mechanisms to do it, but we also know that there's a fair, fairly high degree of success for people giving up cold turkey. So this could have been a time when people change their behavior just because it's not there. Ah, um, I hear you, I hear you. But, 
You, you hear me, yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, it's a it's a fair point to raise. Um, I think that the difficulty is, you know, a broader or what we need is a broader discussion around uh, tobacco addiction and nicotine addiction in particular, um, and and you know what what steps need to be taken. And I mean, obviously, government. It's no secret uh, that the Department of Health um, is actively campaigning um, in an effort to try to get more and more people to quit the habit. Um, and I think that that in itself is is a noble. Um, idea, it's a noble cause but I think that the key question that we have to ask ourselves is how do we go about it in a successful manner um, and, and uh, a hard lockdown with sudden cold turkey might not be the immediate solution uh, but that's a different conversation for a different time I mean these are some stunning stats, I mean it's very interesting, is it possible for people uh, members of the public to access any of these statistics and read it up in their own leisure, things that maybe I would have skipped things that I wouldn't have mentioned that would obviously oh, be yeah. important to them yeah, it's it's all over the social media. All the slides that I presented um, at the press briefing this afternoon are available on all the various uh, so all the various social media sites. And should anybody not be able to access it in that way, they can contact the HSRC on our website or me directly. And yes, we've made it all available. Everything's available to the public. Would you be and able to give like us to any? T- so, so just as a final question and uh, before I let you go, um, any teasers for any other work that you are busy doing as the HSRC looking at COVID-19 and its impact? I mean, are you actively looking at what happens post-lockdown? Are you actively looking at some of the other issues that may be coming up that we're not talking about right now? Yes. Uh, at the moment, we have an active survey uh, on our website. Um, and I, I would encourage the listeners if they are, any kind of frontline health worker, any health worker, please go ahead and uh, take the survey. survey online. It takes about 10, 15 minutes to share your views. And we look of health. Okay, great stuff. We just That's lost awesome. you. We literally just lost you a bit there, Prof. But listen, thank you so thank much you, for, for, for giving us your time this evening and all the best to you and, and the work that you are doing. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. That was uh, Professor Priscilla Reddy, Deputy Executive Director um, at um, the, I'll I'll tell you now, Deputy Executive Director at the Human and Social Capabilities Division in the HSRC.